Welcome to the 27th episode of the Skills Factory. Talks and ideas about skills from Europe and beyond. This is the podcast series of the European Training Foundation, the European Union agency working on human capital development in EU neighboring countries. And let me introduce you our very special guest for this episode, Pilvi Torsti, Director, European Training Foundation. Welcome, Pilvi. Thank you very much. So a special time since mid-April I was able to join the European Training Foundation and now to address all our listeners in different parts of Europe and the globe. Thank you. I would like to quote you some of the recent headlines from newspapers and media outlets. The Economist. Governments are ignoring the pandemic disastrous effect on education. Euronews. Teacher shortages worry countries across Europe. Washington Post. Public education is facing a crisis of epic proportions. So, Pilvi, do you agree that education worldwide is in crisis? I do agree we have an education crisis. And I think the uh, perhaps the most important distinction to be made is that we have the uh, pre-pandemic time and the post-pandemic time. And we should be remembering that already in the pre-pandemic time, we had certain issues in education that are still with us and the pandemic brought also new ones. And if I would pick two or three elements of the crisis that I think one could recognize, firstly, perhaps to underline that it really exists. We, in 2022, first time I think ever, we had a UN-level summit on education, transforming education summit, actually brought together by the UN Secretary General Guterres. So that shows, I think, the sense of urgency. He even as a sort of individual almost, but with the powers of the UN Secretary General, uh, wanted to put behind this question. And I, I see that also a little bit promising because first time it was really brought to the attention of all world leaders. So let that be the proof of the nature of the crisis. Then if you look at the issues uh, from the crisis, uh, I personally have typically underlined, I think, two elements. One is the question of uh, uh, equality and access. Uh, we, of course, had that already pre-pandemic, but post-pandemic, I think it's very important for all of us to recognize that the experiences in different parts of the world are very different. I come from Finland, where our schools actually had zero days of closure. They moved to online, but sort of overnight. Of course, there were perhaps somewhat easier days, but still. And then you have countries where children missed half a year of school. So in order to bridge that gap, it doesn't happen by itself. So that's a huge crisis of equality. And the second, perhaps, that I would underline is really the privatization of education in different levels that we again experienced before the pandemic and we experience currently, where in many countries where there was this headline about public education. So in a way, public education crisis is partly about privatization trend in education. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it surprises me, you know, those countries that typically have done the best in education have very strong public systems. However, we seem to go to more and more privatized systems also in emerging economies. So to summarize, yes, we have the crisis and it was underlined by the Guterres and uh, Transforming Education Summit of the UN last year. And I think the major issues really is the question of inequality globally, but then also the privatization uh, uh, in different levels of education. We don't have a crystal ball here with us, but do you think this crisis will last for a long time or do you see already the end of it? Well, education is always long term for good and for bad. 
And luckily, I have also seen uh, countries where long-term investments have paid off, and really there has been major changes because of the investment and commitment for a long time. So as an optimist by nature, I don't want to say I wouldn't see light, although we live in a very unpredictable world, and for someone in, in her late 40s, it's, it's difficult sometimes to navigate because so many parameters have actually changed over the last couple of years. But I have not lost my belief in the force of education sort of to change the world, but also to be a sort of long-term agent of change. But that will require very consistent effort. I see a lot of movement around education by major players on a global level. However, one of course has to say that we the pandemic was such a such a dramatic experience that hit the hardest, the most vulnerable. And therefore, it's a long process that we have to be prepared. And therefore, I would really underline the consistency, consistency and commitment. When you speak about excellence in education, Finland comes first one in all evaluation, in PISA, in, in other articles. Apart from taking that decision, how did Finland manage to keep on with this decision? Because what we see in a lot of developing countries is that political parties changes, government changes, and then they start from scratch all over again. How do you make sure that is the continuity in decisions? I think that's a very good question. Uh, and the one element, so I have a background as a historian and I've analyzed a little bit of Finnish uh, education policies, uh, in particular the 100 years of obligatory education that we have had more or less last year. And um, uh, I think if there was one recommendation I would give for different decision makers in different countries, it would be to utilize parliamentary processes and committees. Because the, the, the backbone of the Finnish education system is the comprehensive school for all. That is of that good quality that there has never been a significant movement towards having also private schools. So we really do not have private schools for the comprehensive primary, secondary schools at all. And uh, it means that it must be of good quality because otherwise people would ask for options, right? And when that comprehensive model was being created, the Critical uh, uh, body that worked for decades, really, at least for 10 years, was a parliamentary committee which brought together researchers, uh, other experts on education, decision makers, both politicians and uh, administrative government uh, officials, as well as the civil society. And through that process, uh, when the political battle was finally sort of uh, successful after having failed a few times, I mean, these were very progressive ideas at the time that let us have same school for all. So it was a very radical idea. But little by little, this sort of committee structure managed, I think, to create an atmosphere where it was recognized, okay, this is perhaps something that is really good for the society. And these kind of parliamentary structures, they sound perhaps a bit dry or bureaucratic even, but they have that, that, that ability to carry over governmental changes, for instance. It's extraordinary how in some many countries parliament is the less stable institution existing and still in Finland it became a guarantee for yeah. the reforms to take place. Yeah, but I think the key is that it's only not only the parties, but it's, that the, it's also the researchers, mm -hmm. experts, so that everyone is in the same table. So also there is still broad ownership in a way, a shared ownership, if you like. Still in many countries, education is considered like a Cinderella sector. When we need to cut, we first go to healthcare and education. How Finland managed not to cut those costs? Interestingly enough, uh, there were elections this spring and all major parties actually declared that although we will have very budgetary constraints, uh, education is sort of out of our considerations. How is that possible? I think, again, the, it can be this long-term 
um, sort of commitment, which then through the international assessments perhaps became uh, um, in, in, in somehow more recognizable to the society. But again, if you would go to Finland to have this conversation, most people would say, would actually underline the various difficulties and problems we have. I mean, every country, of course, is critical to its own system and should be. But I think you are right in that, that uh, uh, we have been able to uh, give, give education, science and research the kind of place in the budgetary planning that most majority of the parties, to some extent, buy in. Billy, you work with politics for so long. I have a question for you. Because when a politician implements a policy in education, most likely the results will come. The politician will not be in politics any longer. Is it demotivating for a politician to implement something that the results will be maybe even attributed to another one? You need politics to actually get things done and implemented. So I had my first slogan, and actually slogan for 10 years was politics must save the world. And that was to underline the fact that many decisions are taken through a political process, whether you like it or not. So in that sense, if I sort of would look from the personal perspective, I feel extremely proud and content of the fact that for 10 years we sort of worked, for instance, towards the reform in the secondary education, which made it obligatory. So until two years ago, the 15-year-old in Finland could actually drop out from school and no one would ask where he or she is. Mm -hmm. And now it's obligatory to continue until you are 18. So it's a really major reform. And it was contested exactly in the same way as the comprehensive school back in 1960s. So perhaps almost the opposite. I feel very content that such a reform, which results we will really see in 2030s and 40s. We cut it through. Uh, you know, one gathered uh, all the data and information and, and had the different networks uh, together and finally the relatively broad support. Bilby, uh, you recently wrote a series of articles about global vision for education. What is global vision for education? Global vision for education uh, was a quite in-depth analysis done together with an Indian and New Zealand colleagues uh, with whom we actually started to have uh, talks during the pandemic and right after comparing our ex our experiences and, and perhaps learnings from the pandemic. And um, it, it's, a, it's a really broad series of articles, uh, but if I really pick the main idea we had was that Uh, education systems were born to support nation states. They are typically national. We are, for instance, representing EU agency. Education is not in the powers of EU except on the higher education level. We have come to live in, in, in the global world with global realities, but the education systems have actually not changed much since the 19th century structure day. That if we are to prepare our children and young people and, and of course also the adult population for the world where we, they live in and where they will live in and have to make their sort of successful lives, we need to have also global elements in the way we look at our education as systems. And what we argued in our article, which is very much connected to the Transforming Education Summit of the UN, was that uh, uh, one, you should really have uh, uh, perhaps some uh, content that could be shared. We are not, of course, arguing that we should change our national systems into global, but there could be elements that could be shared in, even in the curricular level. Ten, if we go, say, 10 years from today, uh, in subjects from such as climate change, digitalization, equality issues, and so on. And then we also argue that perhaps we do need uh, global leadership in this, that there must be uh, a global structures that also see 
that there is such a need uh, uh, for the for 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 shared uh, shared content. Uh, the context that we analyzed was the post-pandemic in that sense that the digitalization has given us here a uh, uh, really new tool. So if you look at the pre-pandemic times and you take education system practically anywhere, so uh, a, a teacher uh, or, or or a pupil doesn't really see himself or herself as part of any other but national community. Mm -hmm. While now uh, most educators actually face the same pandemic with the same questions, okay, they were quite technical, but still. So perhaps for the first time in human history, we have, had, we have teachers in China or in Italy or in Finland that had similar issues and, and recognize themselves as part of the global community. So there is this identity element that, okay, I'm actually part of the educators of the world. And then there is a technical element they got used to using tools that we could actually apply easily to share some content in education in the future. Who should be the leading voice in this global community? Uh, well, that's a question we've been actually asking both ourselves and also our colleagues from different organizations. And I think our question has been that do we currently have the structures we need? Uh, we have to, of course, remember that the, after Second World War, we created most of our uh, global international structures from uh, in the financial sector and, and, and other sectors. And of course, we have, for instance, UNESCO under UN uh, for Education, OECD takes a certain role in education. Our view was that let us see if some of the current uh, existing institutions could take a lead, but we didn't rule out the idea that perhaps you know, we have World Economic Forums and Monetary Forums. So perhaps in the coming years, it's a time to think, do we need actually world education institutions? That is, by definition, global, not intergovernmental. Not national yeah. biased yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, because one of the biggest roles of education is to prepare kids, the upcoming generation, to the labor market. And the labor market is already global. We already know that. So Exactly. And that's one key element we are actually analyzing that, you know, goods and people move and are global. And we have tried to sort of cater for that through many systems mm -hmm. in labor markets, in trainings and so on. But somehow education systems have remained quite untouched. Well, maybe coming back to the crisis we discussed before, the global vision for education might be one of the solutions to come out of it. Yeah, absolutely. And that's how we also framed it, that when listening the... The, I think the first uh, attempts to answer the global crisis in the Transforming Education Summit in 22 September, listening to, to both Guterres, but also, for instance, I think one of the very vocal uh, 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 leaders there is from Sierra Leone, David Senger. So they all underlined, I think, very same themes that you have to root the global movement into local tradition, not only the national level, but also the very local identities, uh, the, the sort of bottom-up approach together with the leadership on the very high, highest mm -hmm. uh, international national and global level. We thought that our thinking that we had started already perhaps a year before, also collecting really real-life examples from India, sort of what really happened to children of India or of Maori uh, minority in, in New Zealand, in a way coincided with the Transforming Education Summit and therefore also gave an additional, perhaps, push that we decided to, to really, really work on a, a large series of articles. So it's interesting because we speak about global vision for education, but then yet we include the local, very local level. So it's kind of a vertical structure 
to to be comprehensive yeah. worldwide, but also to take into account the local communities. Yes, exactly, because I think that's what we also have have seen that if the national edu education systems don't recognize the local communities. They, many actually uh, people feel distant from the systems they are supposed to feel actually part of. So exactly as you said, we, have, we should move on the vertical to utilize everything we as humankind in a way have learned in order to perhaps save ourselves. I mean, the planet will last, but yeah. whether we will last, I guess, is the question. <laughs> yeah. Speaking about new trends in education, um, we're all facing a real revolution right now related to the artificial intelligence. We don't have, again, the crystal ball. We don't know what will happen. But what do you think will be the immediate effect of artificial intelligence on education? You know, in Italy, where we are based, actually AI tools are banned. Yes. First, uh, as someone with training and academic background as a historian, so my first comment to AI these days is always that we should remember AI was not invented this year or last year, even not this, this decade. We've had several decades of various AI solutions mm -hmm. and we've had a sort of period of slow progress and of very fast progress. And I, I think it's even too early to say that are we now in the middle of a very quick progress or is it something that we are now a bit concerned and then we will see it a little bit in a perspective. Just to illustrate my point, I recall very well exactly 10 years ago when self-driving cars were really supposed to be reality in a few years' time. And I was personally very interested because I don't particularly like driving, but my life has been such that I still need to sort of move from places also by car. So I was very much looking forward to this going from my city house to countryside and being able to work as my car drives. Now, we are more or less in the same place as we were in 10 years ago with self-driving cars. So actually that has not happened. Uh, one thing that I'm sure of, though, in education uh, and, and science with uh, artificial intelligence is that we should do our utmost to try to understand what it actually is. So we should really encourage people to to learn some basics. You know, I share something with you. I, I have historian background as well. <laughs> so I remember seeing pictures of 1960s in the States and teachers protesting against use of the calculators. And I imagine that will be more or less the same. The tool is there. We can't. Uh, uh, stop using it, but it's about how you use them. Exactly. I think what we discussed earlier also about the sort of future needs for for uh, education for which I think the global uh, vision is needed. So it will underline the elements where the sort of sense of humanity is just irreplaceable. So questions on ethics, mm -hmm. questions on sort of social emotional um, uh, um, a holistic approach in all levels of education from early childhood up to adult education. So I think it also challenges us to see that what is really very specific in, in being human being uh, rather than seeing uh, uh, the sort of technology only as a threat. And now again, I don't want to be misunderstood. I do think we have to be very clear, for instance, with the risks we have currently with, uh, with uh, different groups of population that are uh, subject to uh, various, for instance, attempts to influence their views. And you can't really recognize actually that's what's happening in my social media channels sort of that I, I, that I don't know. And that's why I so stress that do try to understand what the artificial intelligence is, because then you can also perhaps recognize that, okay, now I'm only seeing this kind of posts and adverts. Why is it? And then you can also do something for it, because that we do have tools more and more also to control a little bit. So no quick actions, no quick decisions, but rather gathering of information and trying to understand the nature. 
to understand, to understand the positives, to understand the risks, and no rust conclusions, mm -hmm. in particular if they concern entire populations, like, for instance, one generation of students. Yeah. And coming back to AI, um, we have a new tradition in our podcast. We use AI to generate a question related to the po topic of the episode. And today's question, formulated by ChatGPT, is how can we balance national and global interests in values in education? I think this is, by the way, a very good example of an uh, AI question that in the first uh, first look, we wouldn't recognize it's an AI. But if someone is educator, we immediately think that why would you have an answer, balanced national and global interests and values? Because we actually have never had that kind of discussion. So it comes from our words and titles. So, yes, and yes, now yes. we can see that there is not much content actually to, to, the, to, the, to the question. But it allows me to bring, I think, forward what we have actually discussed that it's 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 a question we have not addressed enough that we have the national level and the global level in the questions of education and human capital development at, at large. And I am personally very much looking forward to coming years and decade because we so recognized in the world the need of resilience, of uh, ability to cope with change. And the answer of, of everyone is the human capital development and education. My dream is to see few uh, education institutions perhaps on the child uh, youth level and an adult level that, for instance, would connect on a sort of global and national level on a very regular and sort of hands-on basis. Just to share, let, okay, let us have our theme, cybersecurity, and then we do a work of one month and then we share the results. Very easily done, but it's not existing at the moment. Mm. So I think it doesn't necessarily need to be top-level uh, uh, value discussion that's needed as well. But I think we can have practical solutions that bring about those questions uh, of values. The other dream I have is that we've seen, with the mentioned International Baccalaureate, quite successful in our 50 years of social service that is a compulsory element of, of actually curriculum. Why wouldn't it be a compulsory element of most uh, uh, countries, i.e. a global element of, of our education system underlining the need for solidarity that we again have experienced in the past years as a key both value, but also, I guess, a skill. Mm -hmm. No, that's a really positive, actually, view of the future of education. Uh, hopefully, you know, these crises will bring us to a whole new level of this new education, both global, national and local, with all those elements that you've mentioned. Thanks a lot. I would like to thank our speaker, our new ETF director, Pilvi Torsti. Thanks a lot for being with us today. Thank you very much for a very interesting theme as well. And thanks for listening and stay tuned because there is much more to come. Goodbye. Goodbye.